Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business show from the journalists at Business in Vancouver newspaper. I'm Haley Wooden. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership came into effect mid-November, forming the world's largest trade bloc, which happens to include Canada's second and third largest trade partners. I'm joined today by two guests from the Canada West Foundation. We are joined by Carlo Data, regular on the show. He's the director of the Foundation's Trade and Investment Centre. Carlo, good to see you again. Thanks for coming on. Hey, always a pleasure. We're also joined by Sharon Sun, a trade policy economist with the Foundation. Sharon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Carlo, I'll start with you. How significant is this partnership on a global scale? And to what extent should Canadian and Western Canadian businesses really be paying attention to the deal? Sure. So anytime you have an agreement this size, uh, 15 countries, uh, 15 countries with high rates of growth, uh, 15 countries that are major markets, uh, two or three of Canada's largest foreign trading partners, obviously it requires attention. Um, it's also beyond just the trade statistics. It's also another table uh, in Asia to which Canada is not part and a major table. So there is the agreement itself, the facilitation for movement of goods, for movement of people, for forging or improving supply and production chains. And then there are the other elements the sort of non-dollars and cents elements. And that is countries coming together to have establish a platform upon which they can build further liberalization and build further connections. And indeed, the agreement calls for establishment of a, a secretariat and the secretariat will need an institutional base, office space. Um, so there are those two elements uh, that we need to keep in mind the dollars and cents, and then the table where people agree to work on issues. And for countries, it gives them another forum, for instance, for confronting China on issues, another platform beyond the WTO, beyond the bilateral agreement, yet another platform where they can engage China on issues, both progressive and defensive. So all in all, it's a lot. On the other hand, the agreement's not terribly <laughs> impressive <laughs> in terms of liberalization. Um, this was agreement of sort of the lowest common denominator, uh, and they actually did better by kicking India out of the agreement. They managed to um, they managed to raise the standards, but still it falls way, way, way short of the standards um, that we have in the TPP. So a mixed bag. Yeah, there's there's definitely two um, interesting aspects to it. One aspect is actually the agreement itself, which Carlo mentioned um, is not as extensive as the CPTPP that Canada has signed uh, with the Asia Pacific region. But at the same time though, it does have innovative elements that are interesting, that does call for our attention. Um, so, and, and that's in terms of timeline and the provisions. So for this particular agreement, while it is signed, um, each individual member country has a different timeline on the implementation. Um, and there's actually an annex um, outlining the different timelines for date of entry for each individual member. Um, and so that's that's interesting. So for example, Cambodia has an extension of five years to implement provisions like the uh, application of digital technology at customs. Right, so I think that has implications for Canada uh, in 
in terms of negotiating any future agreements with developing countries um, in, in the sense of this flexibility that you don't often see in traditional trade agreements. Um, so, so these are the two interesting aspects on actually the, the content of the agreement. And then the other aspect that is important for Canada is, as Carla mentioned, what does it mean? Um, and while you know Canada already has a bilateral agreement with South Korea, which is a member in the RCEP right now, as well as Japan, Vietnam, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia um, under the CPTPP. Okay, so from that perspective, you know Canada is not uh, really missing any additional market gains with these individual countries, particularly since Japan is one of our um, you know third largest trading partners. But what's important here is the further integration that these countries have with China. So you have allies, our allies, such as Australia and New Zealand, who are also our competitors in the region, having new channels to engage China with, something that we don't have. Um, and so not being part of the bloc um, makes, can uh, makes Canada falling further behind um, in terms of engagement with China. Another note is this regional trade block is one of the uh, it, it's one of the largest and one of the first times for China to sign on to such an important regional trade block. The last one was 20, 2005 with ASEAN, which is a smaller uh, block, right? Smaller regional block, and uh, the one before that is 2002. Uh, which is as part of China's accession to the WTO. So since China's accession to the WTO, this is one of the more important regional trade packs for China. And so that has implications for Canada as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, relations between China and Canada kind of at an all-time low right now, Carlos. So what does this integration happening in the Asia Pacific with China and without Canada kind of mean for our future trading relationship with China? You know, that's a great question. It highlights a really important issue that I think is being missed in the current uh, discussions uh, in the media and policy circles in Canada. And that is, as Sharon mentioned, our allies who are also our competitors for Asian markets, and specifically for the Chinese market, are managing to engage China on political issues, are managing to deal with the tensions uh, with China are managing to deal with attacks, political attacks by China. And at the same time, they continue to manage, not just manage the trade relationship, but grow the trade relationship. So despite the problems that Australia's had, you've not seen them throw up their hands and say, forget it, we're gonna punish you by walking away from our trade agreement with you. No, they were actually working on, on renovating it. And even more, they've just signed a new agreement where China is the largest partner. So for Canada, I think this should be a real wake-up call. Yes, we collaborate with our allies on security and other issues, but where we compete with our allies for the Chinese market, we're not competing. Our allies are continuing to engage. The Americans, after telling us in the NAFTA negotiations to not even think about negotiating with China, turned around two months later and said, oh, by the way, we just signed a trade agreement with China that basically runs over Canadian agriculture with a tractor. Um, so we haven't managed to do what our allies who are our competitors are doing. And this 
should be a real object lesson to Canadians on the need to wake up and realize that we're only playing half the game that our allies are playing. Yeah, definitely. And if we were to look at the regional level, um, Canada and ASEAN only recently started exploratory discussions on, on having an FTA. And so if you look at RCEP, all of the members within RCEP already has a agreement with ASEAN. That was the kind of the initiators uh, when RCEP began discussion. So we are only at the exploratory discussion stage, which means how far we are still in joining um, or even consider joining um, a, a trade bloc or a regional bloc like RCEP. Um, so being late to the table makes it more difficult to compete a, with the allies, as Carlo mentioned, in the Asia-Pacific region, but also in terms of meeting our diversification mandate and interest to diversify. Um, and finally, we are also missing opportunities and sectoral complementaries with our allies in the region. So in our blog, we kind of just took a preliminary look at uh, what are some of the exports or largest exports that Canada made makes uh, with all of the countries within that block. And there are certain things like electrical machinery and equipment where we export a large amount, but relatively less compared to Australia and New Zealand. So these are things that we can learn from them uh, in, if we are to work together with them in that block. And so from that perspective, T the importance of TPP for Canada has now amplified um, in terms of taking advantage of working with our allies in that region for market access. Mm -hmm. I know there's been talk, Sharon, about the potential expansion of the CPTPP to include other countries. At one point, there was talk about China down the road joining that agreement. Do you think that could still happen? Is that path still open or is RCEP maybe pulling focus away and that's going to be a deal of the future that maybe China and some other trading partners focus more on? I think new members to the CPTPP is definitely still open. Uh, we've and we've seen that Canada has already done um, studies on what this means uh, if if new members join. Um, and I, uh, in recent news, I think China has also expressed some interest in in the CPTPP again. So we'll definitely see both uh, trade blocks. Um, growing simultaneously and kind of working in parallel simultaneously, just like many other trade agreements that are already in place in the region. So we, we do definitely see kind of a spaghetti bowl effect, but the TPP um, is should definitely be expanding. And Carlo, when it comes to policy in Canada toward trade, where do you think we go from here? Is there a path to us joining RCEP? Is it really investing more time and resources and focus on what we have in the CPTPP? What do you foresee? Yeah, so there certainly is a path. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the text of the RCEP, the RCEP agreement, the ascension provisions are easier than what we have in the TPP, uh, I, I, I would argue. So there certainly is a path to approach the, uh, to approach the Secretariat once it's set up and once they begin accepting members. But you know, the point with Canada that's been made repeatedly by analysts like us and that's been taken by the government uh, itself 
is that we need to get more out of the agreements we have. There has been a history of underperformance. Uh, the judgment of that is can be called into question. Um, you know whether or not we've really underperformed. The private sector may beg to differ, but the analysis, um, the larger analysis, is that we have underperformed. So we really need to promote or provide more resources into getting what we have. We're not using the CETA agreement uh, the way that the modeling showed it, it could be. And certainly with the TPP, um, we certainly are underperforming. We've underperformed in NAFTA. If you look at Canadian exports to Mexico, <laughs> a growing global middle-class market, the numbers we've been running on trade and agriculture show a drop-off in exports to Mexico. So we have a market that's richer than China um, per capita GDP, that has a growing global middle class to which we're connected by railroads and we haven't been able to exploit that market. So certainly before our eyes continue to get bigger, looking at new markets, we need to start looking at finishing what's on the plate in front of us. I suppose it's worth asking too, we're in such an unusual time globally for businesses that are trying to figure out at home what's happening with COVID and the pandemic. What might be a good few first steps they could take if they are looking to maybe take advantage of something like the CPTPP once they're ready? <laughs> well, a little shameless <laughs> self-plug here, but we've done some really extensive modeling on the agreement not the sort of general modeling that PhDs use, but modeling that's specific for business. So we've modeled the opportunities in Japan at the product level. So not office furniture, but chairs, you know, swivel back, that sort of level. So that information is available to help firms understand opportunities in the Japanese market. Um, opportunities that result from Japan joining the TPP and its trade relations with other countries changing. So it's really sophisticated modeling. That is in the hands of each provincial government and their trade promotion agencies. Um, so that information is available to help businesses um, take, advantage, take advantage of the agreement. So really, you know, Canada has almost a problem in that we have too many export support services for business. Uh, you have Export Development Canada, uh, Business Development Canada, the provincial government, uh, you have foreign affairs, you have the trade commissioners. The list can get up to a dozen agencies in some provinces. So in terms of helping businesses, there's a real need for government at all levels to come together, rationalize the provision of services and make it easy, idiot-proof for a business to be able to find the service it needs. For example, if you're exporting processed food here in Alberta, you would be shocked to discover that you should not be going to the export and trade ministry, but you should be going to agriculture and forestry. Now, if you don't own a tractor and don't own a chainsaw, you're wondering why the government sent you to ag and forestry, but yet that's where the export resources are. So there's a lot of help, but there's a lot of confusion. And we've been very strenuous in our calls for governments at all levels to end the confusion. The Americans are, are doing this, but we really haven't moved to bring the services online in ways that are again, idiot proof for business to find the correct service rather than wasting time calling 
the trade ministry only to discover that they should have been calling the folks with tractors and chainsaws to export processed food. <laughs> Not complicated or confusing whatsoever. <laughs> um, Sharon, a final question. I, we have had four years where U.S. president has, to a large extent, championed tariffs and trade protectionism. We've seen other examples of nationalism and protectionism around the world. Do you think RCEP stands as a potential example to the contrary, that maybe we're going to see more integration and more collaboration moving forward? I think that's definitely one of the key objectives for RCEP, um, especially for China, for example. RCEP is definite, definitely proposes a new level of, or at least the aim is to pro propose a new level of stability in the area, both geopolitically and economically. And the RCEP um, definitely, the aim is to enhance the regional supply chain integration. So. In, in the Chinese perspective, it's quite consistent with its regional strategy, such as the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so that will definitely have new implications for Canada, especially in um, our agricultural export sector, um, in terms of the changing in, in demand and activity uh, based on the increasing regional connectivity in the area. So, hey, one quick last point, if I could, important for Canada in this agreement. We mentioned that it's a low level of ambition in the agreement, yet even to get an agreement of low level of ambition, it only came about because the other countries kicked India out of the agreement. So for Canadians that are thinking about the Indian market, there's talk in this country that we should prioritize trade negotiations with India. You know, this is a, a something that needs to be noticed. The agreement only agreement led with China, Indonesia, other countries of low ambition only got across the finish line because they kicked India out. So that should really be a, a wake up call to us and our ambitions for negotiating with India. It's a good takeaway. Carlo, Sharon, thank you both so much for joining the show with your insights. Really appreciate it. Always Thanks a pleasure. So that's Carlo Day, director of the Foundation's Trade and Investment Center. Sharon Sun is a trade policy economist at the Canada West Foundation as well. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks so much for listening and watching to our show. BIV Today will be back with a new episode tomorrow.